Life Audio. Welcome to another episode of Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis, where we try to seek the truth about what matters most through reason and evidence. Today I'm going to be giving a discussion of why Christians should be conservatives and conservatives should be Christians. This may be fairly controversial to some people. I won't be able to give my full arguments just in the next, what, 25, 30 minutes. But this is based on a lecture I originally gave in 2016 at the Western Conservative Summit in Denver, Colorado. This is put on every year by Colorado Christian University. I had a good crowd for this talk. It seemed to be pretty well received. At this particular conference, Donald Trump attended and gave a plenary talk. Uh, I was hoping he would come to my talk, but sadly he did not, and I was not offered a position in his cabinet. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about my views on politics I guess I'm known much more as a philosopher of religion, an apologist, something of a social critic, and maybe not so much as a political thinker. In fact, I've had people take pot shots at me on Facebook and elsewhere and say he should just stick to his expertise in apologetics and not get into politics. I've been thinking about matters of political philosophy and the relationship of religion and politics for many years as a Christian. I have written about this most thoroughly in my recent book, Fire in the Streets, uh, which was given a long subtitle that doesn't really describe the book. The book is about critical race theory or about wokeness. And I'm afraid some people don't know that's what the book is about, so it maybe isn't selling as much as I would like. But my considered political philosophy based on my Christian worldview and other research is evident in that book, and I'm sure you will not find it superficial or ad hoc. Let me give you a little bit of background about my own thinking about political matters. I was raised in an old-line Democratic family in Anchorage, Alaska. My father, Harold Grothuis, was an active Democrat in Alaskan politics. He was a labor leader I remember Dad going on television twice in 1968, shortly before his tragic death in a plane crash, giving a speech for Hubert Humphrey. And I wonder if that was recorded 
I would love to see it. It was live. Perhaps there's a tape of it somewhere. But after my father died, I didn't really think a whole lot about political issues. I think my mom would typically vote Democrat. I was just a kid. I was just 11. But I remember going out on a picket line with my dad because Penny's in Anchorage was not a union operation. And so uh, my dad and I, along with other folks, picketed it. I remember my sign said, kids don't shop at Penny's either. So I've been a political activist, I guess, from way back. But after I became a Christian at age 19 in 1976, I re-engaged the political world because I knew as a Christian, I needed to care about law, politics, the state. I needed to care about everything from a Christian viewpoint. And what I gravitated towards initially was the left-wing version of political action by Christians that was explained by people like Jim Wallace of the Sojourners community or uh, Ronald J. Sider. I read his book, Rich Christians and Age of Hunger, which was a critique of capitalism, a endorsement of a kind of Christian socialism. And I became very interested in more liberal views of politics. And my thought was, well, the left really cares deeply about, as we would say, the poor and the oppressed. And the right does not. So I should support the left. Of course, not a secular version of the left. And I became very strongly pro-life in 1979 after reading Schaefer's and C. Everett Koop's book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. So I became pro-life before I became more conservative politically, although being pro-life is part of being conservative, really. But something happened. I kept reading. You know, reading is dangerous. I was a pacifist for a few years, and then I began to read more broadly and richly and changed my mind about that and supported a just war position, mostly through the influence of reformed thinkers. But I began to read more broadly about matters of politics, and there were three books that changed me from being liberal politically, maybe kind of a semi-socialist, to being more conservative, supporting a limited state, the free market, and so on. I'll talk about that in one moment. The first book was a modern conservative classic by William F. Buckley called Up From Liberalism. The second was a short campaign book written by Barry Goldwater, called The Conscience of a Conservative. Actually, it was ghostwritten by someone else I found out later. And the third book was written by the theologian and political philosopher R.J. Rushdoony called The Politics of Guilt and Pity. And by the time I read those three books, I was no longer a liberal politically. So what I want to do in this talk, and that was, by the way, probably about the early 80s, I think also reading Francis Schaeffer's book, a Christian Manifesto, I solidified my views a few years later, reading Richard John Newhouse's superb book, The Naked Public Square, was very helpful. Helped me understand my political views as well, to ground them. So let me talk about why I think Christians should be conservatives and conservatives should be Christians. I like to give a rational argument that the Christian worldview favors or supports a conservative vision and that those non-Christians with a conservative vision should embrace Christianity 
as the best support of their essential political beliefs. Now, let's lay some foundation here. How do we justify beliefs? Well, we tried to find knowledge about significant matters. I understand knowledge to be a matter of justified true beliefs, not just guesses, beliefs that happen to be true, but that you can provide some kind of warrant or justification for your beliefs. So as I go along, I will attempt to do that. It's important that we have justified true beliefs about religious questions, our relationship to the sacred. And it's important that we have true and justified beliefs about political matters, of human beings relating to the state, to put it very simply. And in all this, our basic worldview or philosophy of life, we're to try to throw out a fancy German term, our Weltanschauung, probably mispronounced that. Worldviews are very significant to political issues because politics always questions or tries to answer questions about the nature of humanity. Who are we in the world? Can we learn from history? Is history going anywhere? What is the ultimate basis of morality to ground law and so on? So worldviews address, address questions of ultimate reality, the nature of the universe. Who are we as human beings? Is there salvation? And how should human beings relate to political matters? A worldview should be tested. A worldview should be coherent and logical in its assertions about reality. That is, it should be factual, uh, not fictional. And it should be applicable to the whole of life. So we can say that a worldview needs to be internally coherent. It needs to fit the world facts, science, history, human experience. And it should be livable or existentially viable. Let me talk very briefly about the Christian worldview. And I hark back to the book that really explained worldviews to me as a young man, a book called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. Jim really helped me get my first book published, Unmasking the New Age, back in 1986. He was one of the best writers on this issue. The book's called, again, The Universe Next Door. It went through a number of editions. Uh, and I'm going to be using some of the categories that he uses to explain the Christian worldview and compare it to other worldviews. In terms of ultimate reality, Christianity affirms the infinite personal triune eternal God. God is not a force, principle, vibration, but the personal I am who I am of Exodus 3.16. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. He is an eternal, self-existent God who brought all things into being. The universe was created by God out of nothing a finite time ago. It has not always existed. It is not an extension of God's essence. Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. See Genesis 1 on that. But we are fallen. We are east of Eden, so to speak, and therefore in need of redemption. But we have unique and incomparable value in God's world. And this, we'll see, is really the basis, the only true basis for objective human rights. But human beings need to be redeemed from a source beyond and above them. That would be God himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And we believe that this plan of salvation is knowable because God has revealed himself in nature. See, see Psalm 19, 1 through 6, Romans 1. 18 through 21. 
and other scriptures. He's revealed himself propositionally in the Holy Scriptures of the Bible, and he's revealed himself incarnationally in Jesus Christ, that we might know God, know who we are, be redeemed, honor God, and be salt and light in the world. Now, a couple of implications for society and politics based on the Christian worldview. The first point, state and society are not identical, meaning that the state does not have unlimited jurisdiction over life. The state is not what gives final meaning, purpose, and value to human existence. That is really the view of the left, not a conservative view and not a Christian view. So consider Matthew twenty-two sixteen through 23. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that is Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used to pay, used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. There is so much we could explore here. And I do treat this in my book on Jesus. But the simple point I want to make right now is that Jesus distinguishes what belongs to Caesar or the state or civil government from what what belongs to God. Now, in that time, Caesar was essentially worshipped. And when Jesus says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's saying, yes, you need to pay your taxes. However, Caesar is not God. In fact, God is above Caesar. This is because civil government is ordained by God, but it is not the ultimate government. The ultimate governing authority and power in creation, of course, is the triune God himself. However, Paul teaches in Romans 13, 1-7, that the state has a role, has a place, And it has been given what's called the power of the sword. And this has traditionally and rightly been understood as the state has the power of legitimate violence, or it's authorized to use the sword, meaning military power, police power, and things of that nature. Basically, coercion. That's what it means to be a state. has the power to tax, it has the power to arrest individuals, imprison individuals, and so on. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the state will wisely use the power of the sword. In a fallen world with selfish and confused people, it often does not use it correctly. So, Scripture has a lot to say about what we might call the danger of the sword or the danger of civil government. We see that laid out in 1 Samuel 8, where the Israelites want king, and then they're warned that the king will oppress them in many ways. We see the same warning against rulers claiming divine prerogatives and claiming more authority than they are 
warranted to have. Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10, Isaiah 14, 1 through 12. And in Revelation chapter 13, we see the state becoming what is called a beast and arrogating to itself powers, privileges, and authority it does not actually have. And then also, when we think about some political implications of the Christian worldview, we realize that the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated is not fully realized through politics or human efforts or achievements. And this is an essential principle of conservatism, that civil government needs to be limited because it is limited in its ability to bring about good and can also bring a lot of bad things about, as we have seen in human history, and especially in the 20th century through Marxism, which was responsible for the deaths of about 100 million human beings at the hands of the state. Let's talk about conservatism. Remember, my thesis here that I'm edging toward is why Christians should be conservatives and conservatives should be Christians. So I've talked a bit about what is Christianity and some of the political implications of Christianity that we see are already pointing towards a conservative vision. But I have not explained what it means to be a conservative or what is conservatism. So I want to do this and then I want to show that the conservative vision is really supported by Christianity, or I should say maybe Christianity gives credence to a generally conservative vision of society and politics. So here's a definition of conservatism I whipped up. Conservatism is a view of culture and politics that refuses political solutions to religious problems and which esteems tradition as the starting point for political reflection and action. It seeks to conserve what is best in the West political philosophy and institutions and refuses all utopianism. It endorses a limited state or civil government, property rights, minimal taxation, and liberty under law. It speaks more of individual rights than of group rights or identity politics. It is friendly to the Judeo-Christian tradition and resists secularism without endorsing a theocracy. I'm going to make the point that the Judeo-Christian tradition supports conservatism, and there are key aspects of conservatism that actually require the support of a Christian worldview, such as individual and universal human rights. That is, that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, therefore they have certain inalienable rights. So, having, having given, you, uh, given you that definition of conservatism. Let me talk about some key figures. The first would be Edmund Burke in his great book, Reflections on the Revolution in France. Also John Locke, a very significant figure influencing the Founding Fathers. Uh, the Founding Fathers, political philosophy found in the Federalist Papers and elsewhere. The views of Friedrich Hayek, Russell Kirk, William F. Buckley, Richard Weaver, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Thomas Sowell, Richard John Newhouse, uh, Roger Scruton, and more recently, the journalist and author Christopher Rufo. The conservative view advocates what Thomas Sowell calls the constrained vision of humanity as opposed to an unconstrained vision. 
and C. Thomas Sowell's superb book, A Conflict of Visions, on that. The unconstrained vision is really summarized in the statement from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains, meaning we are essentially intrinsically good, but it is only social structures that limit us or constrain us. We are unconstrained with a kind of native goodness. We come into the world trailing clouds of glory, so to speak. And then we are put into chains and we are restricted by artificial social convention. The constrained vision is really that of our Judeo-Christian tradition. And that is that while we are great by virtue of being made in God's image and likeness, we are sinful and we have selfish predilections and propensities. And so we should not expect that human beings can somehow attain heaven on earth or that our problems are essentially extrinsic. No, the problems are essentially intrinsic based on who we are. That doesn't mean we give up on politics or we don't work for political reform. We do. So the American Revolution was really inspired by John Locke, also the writings of Samuel Rutherford and Lex Rex and others. And it is an example of the constrained vision. You might say, well, how could it be? We talk about a new order of ages and the declaration is very forthright that this is a new vision of the world such that we need to be free from England. Well, there's still a constrained vision, as I think we'll see as we go along. The French Revolution is an example of the unconstrained vision. It was inspired by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It was irreligious and totalitarian. Os Guinness has done a lot of very good work on this. He says we're really looking at the conflict in America between the vision and the philosophy of the founders and the vision and the philosophy of the French Revolution, which, of course, wanted to start everything over again, set the calendar to year zero, completely deny the Judeo-Christian influence, rejected as that which supported the royalty. And I think we should see, I hope, that that was an unmitigated political catastrophe. All right. Conservatism also denies uh, utopianism. The state cannot regenerate human beings or create a perfect world. A very good book on this is Thomas Sowell's book, The Vision of the Anointed. And this is a theme he's returned to many times where it says that on the left, on the unconstrained vision, you have all these plans to remake the world through the state, through increased taxation, through more social programs. And when they fail, the idea isn't to change political philosophy, but we need another plan. We need more tax money. We need more social programs. We need to re-engineer everything one more time. And that book, The Vision of the Anointed, denies this vision of the so-called anointed and advocates a more constrained vision. Conservatism, or conservatism, however you want to say it, advances human rights and property rights, which curtails the intrusion of the state into private matters. The biblical injunction from the Decalogue, you shall not steal, assumes private property. And the Bible never says that the state somehow owns all the property 
and it can maybe divvy up a little bit for you if it feels like everything is ultimately owned by God, but we are stewards of God's property and scripture assumes the legitimacy of private property. It does not encourage the greedy use of private property or resources. Conservatism also advocates a limited state as one form of government that does not have jurisdiction to regulate, control, and tax everything. Now, when I say one form of government, I mean that there is, as I mentioned earlier, the ultimate government of God over creation. He is sovereign. We are not. But there's also self-government. Do we control ourselves? Do we use our time and resources wisely? There is family government. Are we affirming the traditional biblical family? Do we have godly parents who raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? We have the government in the church. We have the government in the school and so on. And we have as well civil government, but Conservatives do not typically use the word government to mean civil government. In fact, when I talk about the state, I talk about civil government, given there are these other forms of government. And when the state tries to govern everything, it becomes authoritarian and takes away freedom and opportunities from individuals. On the conservative vision, the state should ensure natural negative rights. That is, human beings should not be murdered, human beings should not be plundered, just to list two. I was on a radio show 10 or 12 years ago with a unbeliever, I believe he was an atheist, but he was a conservative, and he talked about certain natural rights, and he was very concerned about property rights. And I said, since you're an atheist, what is the natural basis for rights? because you cannot ground them in the fact that we're made in God's image and likeness, or that there is a divine standard against theft and so on. And as I remember, he really didn't have a very good answer to that. He would have a very good answer if he assumed the biblical perspective. Conservatives also believe in the separation of powers as a safeguard against the consolidation of state power. So in the United States, we have given the Constitution, three branches of civil government, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. That is very intentional. It's based on a biblical view of humanity, that we are fallen, and so political power needs to be apportioned carefully. Lord Acton has a famous statement, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Conservatives also believe that the state is under a higher authority and may lose its legitimation. So conservatives talk a lot about the rule of law, the rule of law. So the question has to be, what is the ultimate basis for law? Is it merely human? Is it merely natural? Because law always enacts a certain moral vision of reality, whatever it is. So let's go to the Declaration of Independence which is a essentially conservative document, even though it was the justification for a revolution. Uh, R.J. Rushton, he has said the American revolution was a conservative counter-revolution against 
authoritarianism. I think he's right. So, to the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This outlines really the idea of a republic, that civil law should be under divine law, and government derives its powers from the consent of the governed. Now, ultimately, God instituted civil government, as I said earlier, but government should take a particular form, civil government. So I'll read it again. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So this is a word against authoritarianism, totalitarianism. Or think of the American Constitution also as a conservative document. I'll just take the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So the first clause Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Stop there. That means there shall be no national church. It doesn't mean that religion should have nothing to do with civil government. Because look at what follows. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That is the free exercise of religion. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The five beautiful freedoms, luminous freedoms of the First Amendment, do not restrict the influence of religion in civil government at all. In fact, the First Amendment was meant to limit the power of the state over religion, to control religion, because it says Congress shall make the law respecting an establishment of religion. All right. So the founding fathers and the conservative vision in general teach the rule of law, not the whim of man. We are a republic that uses or employs representational democracy. The United States was never meant to be a pure democracy or any sort of democratic socialist arrangement. The last point I'll make about conservatism and how it is really supported by the Christian worldview, is that the free market is the best engine of wealth, the best antidote to poverty, and gives the most freedom to individuals. I can't make that point very much in depth here, but as I mentioned, given the emphasis on private property and individual responsibility and liberty, the free market makes much more sense than the state trying to own, regulate, control, and redistribute wealth. And a very good book on that, recent book, is by Jay Richards called Money, Greed, and God. So I've given an argument here that the Christian worldview supports a basic conservative vision. So let me make a point about how conservatives really should be Christians given their politics. Now, I think everyone 
should be a Christian. Everyone should accept Jesus, bow the knee and the like to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because of his matchless identity and achievements. Irrespective of politics, what I'm saying is that Christianity gives the best philosophical foundation for these essential conservative perspectives that I've tried to lay out. So Christianity emphasizes the authority of the one true and good God over the state. This is the basis for the limited state. And from a religious perspective, we can call out the state and make it responsible for its abuses. I think of Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. He said, we're here to call our country back to its founding principles. And in that sense, at least, he was being conservative. He talked about the magnificent documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, so different from the critical race theory rejection of these documents as intrinsically and and, uh, irrevocably racist. Martin Luther King did not believe that for a minute. So from a Christian viewpoint, we have a perspective to call the state into question. Let me read you something from Francis Schaeffer's small but very powerful book. I've probably read this book five or six times. I've listened to it probably three or four times. came out in 1981, called The Christian Manifesto. Quote, the civil government, as all of life, stands under the law of God. In this fallen world, God has given us certain offices to protect us from the chaos, which is the natural result of that fallenness, the fallenness of humanity. See Genesis 3 on that. But when any office commands that which is contrary to the word of God, those who hold that office abrogate their authority and they are not to be obeyed. And that includes the state. God's ordained the state as a delegated authority. It is not autonomous. The state is to be an agent of justice, to restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and to protect the good in society. When it does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then a usurped authority, and as such, it becomes lawless and is a tyranny. So we'll put it. So if conservatives believe their natural rights, where do they come from? They come from God. If conservatives believe the state should be limited under law, what is the basis of that law? What is the basis of that authority? It's in God himself. If conservatives believe that the state needs to be resisted at some points, why? And at what points? Well, the Christian message tells us that. And the Christian worldview tells us that human beings are great by virtue of being made in God's image and likeness, but we are also fallen. So we should not expect human beings to engineer utopia. We should not expect that if we let people just express themselves, that there would be no need for policing or no need for prisons or no need for a military. Not that reform is unneeded in those areas. There is need for reform. But you see this unconstrained left-wing vision claims that the problem is not in the individual, the problem is in the system. Now, conservatives believe the problem is in the individual and in the system, but we must not trust the system to do only what God can do, which is to redeem and forgive human beings through the work of Jesus. 
So the biblical view gives us a sense of the grandeur and the majesty of human beings and gives us a basis for human rights, but it does not expect too much from human beings. So on this view, human rights are based on men and women bearing the image and likeness of God, Genesis one twenty six. But human beings are fallen and tend towards selfishness. We see that in Genesis 3 and also Romans 3, 9 through 20, really the whole Bible. Now, Christianity also gives us tremendous incentives to helping the poor and the marginalized through just laws and through various forms of giving. So it is not the case, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, that it's really the leftists and the liberals who truly care about the poor and conservatives simply want to defend their property and their wealth and let the poor eat cake. It may be some conservatives are hard-hearted like that, but there's nothing in the philosophy itself that would lead to that. The issue is what is the best way to help the poor among us? The conservative would say the best way is not for the state to take everything over and to redistribute wealth and to create more and more social programs that have a dubious record of success. Consider the great society of Lyndon Baines Johnson, for example, and on that read Charles Murray's book on that issue. Title will come to me in a moment. Losing Ground, it's called Charles Murray, Losing Ground. So the Christian is definitely motivated to help the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the least of these. But the issue here is what is the best way to do that given a philosophy of civil government and given your own independent resources and that of your church? When I was a young man, I was very captivated by this idea that the left was truly concerned about the poor, the oppressed, those who had been marginalized because of race and poverty and so on. And the way to answer the questions of poverty and so on, was through extremely progressive taxation, tax the rich, redistribute to the poor. A conservative vision does not hold that. I am every bit as concerned about the poor and people who have been marginalized, the least of these, now, as a conservative, as I was when I was more liberal. The issue is, what is the best way to do this for society overall? And I believe the best way to address these problems and the best way to ensure individual rights and so on is not a left-wing, extremely liberal or critical race theory perspective at all. So let me make some qualifications as I finish up here. Certainly, one does not have to be a conservative to truly be a Christian. By no means. I'm not saying anything that ridiculous. You are a Christian if you confess your sins before God, you recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who died to atone for your sin, and you name him as Lord and Savior. Then you are born again, you receive eternal life. That is what it means, in a nutshell, to become a Christian. What I'm saying is that I think the Christian worldview supports a generally conservative view of society and politics. That's been my case. But I have argued that if you have a generally conservative view, the best way to support those beliefs in individual liberties and so on, limited state, 
is the Christian worldview. So you have some philosophical incentive to embrace the Christian worldview. Now, of course, that's not enough for you to become a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the grace of God. Nor am I saying, my last qualification, that non-conservative Christians are somehow intentionally spurning the biblical worldview and its implications for politics. It could be that some are. They're reading Scripture tendentiously, and they probably accuse me of reading Scripture tendentiously. But I'm not saying that. I have friends and people that I respect who are not conservative in their political views, and I would not say they're somehow not truly being Christian or they're reading uh, Scripture in an intentionally slanted way. So having made those qualifications, let me just reiterate my argument. I've tried to give a rational argument that the Christian worldview favors or supports a conservative vision and that those non-Christians with a conservative vision should embrace Christianity to support their beliefs. That's been my case. And, of course, there is so much to say, but I hope it has made you think. In the show notes, you'll find recommendations for more reading. I've mentioned a few things here. Certainly on the Christian worldview as true, rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. There's my book, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith, 2nd Edition. On Christianity and Politics, I've read from A Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. I'd also recommend a number of other books. Of course, you have classic books like Edmund Burke, Revolution, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. You have a number of books by Oz Guinness, speaking of the Christian stance culturally and politically in our day. And Oz has argued very persuasively that we really face a conflict of the vision of 1776, the American Revolution, which which was a conservative counter-revolution, and the unconstrained vision revolution of the French Revolution. On that, you can read his book, Impossible People, and a number of others. So this has been Doug Rodice with Truth Tribe. If you are interested in my work and my ideas, you can go to douglasgrotheis.com. I also have Twitter at Doug Grotheis. And I hope that you will take what I've said seriously. And if you're interested in responding, I'd be happy to try to respond to you. You can write comments on my webpage or perhaps send me an email or uh, make a nasty Twitter tweet against me. Thank you for listening. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hey, Ted, what do you want to do today? Well, Ashley, I've always got uh, work to do, naps to take. But I have a better idea. How about we invite everyone to listen to the Team Us podcast? I love that idea. Let's do it right now. Hi, everyone. We're Ted and Ashley Slater, and we'd love for you to join us as we talk about teamwork in marriage. We share how grace, commitment, and cooperation can help couples live the everyday moments of marriage together. To listen, go to lifeaudio.com and search for Team Us.